Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Good morning and welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Programme. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm talking to Gaylene Carvis about her new book, I Have Decided to Remain Vertical. Uh, welcome, Gaylene. Oh, thank you so much for having me here. Well, it's great to see you. And congratulations. I, I really like your new book. It's, uh, it's full of amazing different pieces in different forms. Thank you. So how did you know when you had enough material for the next book? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I do write a lot, so I'm quite a prolific writer. And uh, I, I, so I had a lot of material to choose from. And I tried to choose what I thought were my strongest poems, my best work. So it was a lot of culling and cutting and taking in and taking out. And then, of course, um, deciding on the structure, which always takes me quite a while. Yeah, and it's um, an interesting structure. You've got three chapters. Um, how did you – what, what's the idea behind the three different chapters? It wasn't intentional, but it's actually the similar or the same structure as my first book, Anecdotal Evidence. Um, which is also in three sections. And so this was inadvertent in some ways, but it was absolutely deliberate in other ways. So I think I think that what I went with in the end was um, it's sectioned according to ekphrastic poems. So each section begins and ends with an ekphrastic poem and they're usually referencing paintings. In fact, all of them are referencing paintings except for one which references a writer. And for those who don't know, ekphrastic refers to a poem written about a painting or a sculpture or something like that. Hmm, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of autobiographical material as well. Um, was it hard to know what to include and what to exclude when it comes to autobiographical material? Mm, in many ways, no, and in some ways, yes. So I think I think you you write what you feel compelled to write and then you make choices and decisions about what you feel comfortable sharing. I'm pretty ruthless in terms of um, what I include. 
I'm hard on myself and I can be a bit hard on some others. Although I don't know whether, actually, I don't know whether hard on self and others is a good way of putting it really. But um, I do write some confronting material. I don't, I don't necessarily call my work autobiographical. I'm always distancing and referring to the persona of the poem or the speaker of the poem. But on the other hand, I don't know, I'm a bit, I sit on both sides of the fence with that because I'm also happy to call it autobiographical. <laughs> That's fine. Okay, well, let's start with a woman from Carnegie. Okay, thank you. A woman from Carnegie. I used to see her on the tram or train, her jeep brimming with books, plastic bags tied to the side, flapping in the wind, noisy little sounds that caught your ear and made you turn your head. The bag lady threw Shakespeare into her monologues, knew Wordsworth and Keats and Byron, pieces of poetry, and there she was, pushing her jeep at a Streisand concert, her white hair wild, her big blue raincoat wide open, a misshapen dress tent-like and loose round her stomach, her face flushed from weather and walking. She walked miles. I used to follow her. I tried to ask where she went to school, where she lived, where she'd grown up, but nothing I could say could contain her. She was garrulous, gruff, a gruff manner, a rough voice, and anything in her mind might come out of her mouth. There's no room now on trams or trains for jeeps, and I haven't seen bag ladies in ages, but you do wonder where they've all gone, why I was so filled with fascination and fear. I had a best friend at uni who used to say if she ever wrote a thesis, a master's, a PhD, she'd do it on bag ladies. Kate Grenville's Linnean had haunted her. I never thought to ask her why, yet I understood it too at another level. Another friend, also from uni, told me no matter what she'd never leave her husband. She'd had, she said, a mad mother and an absent father who was an actor. She'd known poverty as a child and she was never going back there. She could still remember being seven years old and doing the shopping, lying awake at night thinking about money. She was 40 years old and still afraid of ending up a bag lady. There used to be bag ladies and mad women on the tram and I'd be there in my short skirts and stilettos and I'd look at them and they'd look at me and for some reason I incensed them, my sandals and my lipstick. I'd always smile as if to say I was benevolent but they'd snarl at me and start screaming obscenities and I'd feel like erupting into this insane laughter and it was so hard to stop. I'd be forced to move and I was always frightened, but trying not to show it. I can still see the bag lady in her big blue raincoat, pushing that jeep round Colonial Stadium where Streisand was. I haven't seen her for a very long time in this suburb, but I still think about all the things we share. And when you say you think about all the things that you share... Uh, it's a very strong poem. Um, what do you have in your mind? 
Well, aside from the literal level of both being at the Barbara Streisand concert, um, I have ongoing housing precarity as a renter, as a single woman renting, and I live in share accommodation. So um, I'm constantly looking for new housemates and never knowing if I'm going to get a notice to vacate, etc., etc., etc. So, um, you know, I, I feel close to that woman that I used to see on some level. And then, of course, there's all her mentionings of Shakespeare and Wordsworth and Keats and Byron. So there's the poetry there and and maybe even the not being able to contain her, you know. Not that I think I'm particularly mysterious or elusive, but um, because I'm pretty transparent and a fairly honest, straight straight out person at times too. Nevertheless, I think we're all mysterious in our own our own way, so there's that too. Yeah. And it it's interesting how somehow the world has become homogenized and these eccentric characters are less visible. You know, you wonder where they've gone. You know, did they just move further out of Melbourne or mm. did they get um, medicalised and hospitalised and sanitised and dragged off into an institution or something, you know? Yeah, it's interesting because there seems to be, at least in my mind, there's a, a difference between identifying someone or identifying isn't quite the right word, but seeing someone as homeless and seeing someone as a bag lady. And it's interesting too that we would use that expression bag lady. I'm not overly fond of the word lady, um, but it it's so gendered too. It, we don't say bag man. Well, that's a different context, isn't it? It's somebody delivering cash in brown paper bags. Yeah, exactly. Different meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, we we do see homeless people. Maybe they're more hidden or something, but we, we they're certainly around different mm. kinds of homeless people. But, yeah, yeah, sure. Maybe living in cars or something. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Anyway, thank you for that. Where would you like to go next? Uh, Red Horse by the River. And this is another ecstatic poem, as you were saying. Yes, yeah. Red Horse by the River, after a lithograph by Anselm Van Root. When you were a child, you drew a red horse by a river. Your teacher told you horses weren't red, but black or brown or grey or white. Your father thought your red was too bold, too bright, a bit over the top for a horse. His eyes turned cold. I think he feared for your future. He called you a sissy under his breath. He blamed me for the red. Your father never denied their existence, though none of us had ever seen them. We'd heard of them out there on the range. Someone said they'd seen one once, down there by the river, but no one believed him. I did, though. He went into so much detail, and his eyes went all dreamy. 
I almost believed I'd seen it too. Your father said your version of red was ridiculous. You shouldn't show only what's real and true. I know, you said, I know. And there goes one person's artistic capacity crushed. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Though in this case, um, this is not uh, autobiographical at all. It's a a purely imagined scenario. Right, right, Mm. yeah. And um, but it's it's a great metaphor Mm -hmm. um, for. Uh, so much of um, that kind of literalism and realism that is intolerant of expressionism and imagination. Yes. I'm talking to Gaylene Carbus about her new book, I Have Decided to Remain Vertical, um, which is published by Puncher and Watnam. Now we're going to go on to um, a poem called Ribbons, Uh, So tell me, what was the inspiration for writing this poem? I have no memory of what inspired this poem, but uh, all I can say is that when I read it now, it it seems almost like a pandemic poem. Right. But it was written a long time before the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, would you like to read Ribbons? Thank you. Ribbons. How nervously now a cold comes. I fear chaos. I know the wind carries more than pollen. I know how felled a body can be by something that once seemed so small. And yet we forget too, forget sweating in our beds, our heads heavy, our legs shooting with pain. We have been here before. But 20, 30, 40 are nowhere near 50. We stand on the other side looking back saying, Oh my God, I never knew I had such a tiny waist. Once I ran round an oval in a picture hat and my ribbons ran after me. They could never catch me. Nobody could. Now I have caught up with myself and I never wear ribbons. There is a writer friend about my age who wears a red hibiscus in her hair on one side as if she's in Hawaii. Another woman from choir wears red ribbons and a red dress after Kate and Kathy calling out to Heathcliff. Ribbons are still possible. And so is red. I am not dead after all, just half alive after asthma, the flu. Meanwhile, I see those other women in my mind with their flowers and their ribbons and remember. There's something very locked away and isolated about being ill, isn't there? You know, it's kind of drab and sad in a way, being sick and at home and not able to run run through the fields with ribbons in your hair and having fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I think I always forget how awful asthma and the flu can be, you know, how they're so terrible. Yes, they're life-threatening. Well, yeah, true. I haven't had life-threatening, but, you know, still, it's pretty awful. Yeah, mm. it's a lovely image anyway, the the beauty of ribbons and, and flowers and, you know, Kate and Kathy calling out to Heathcliff. 
<laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I'd originally had this last line, um, and I ask myself, where have you been and are you ever coming back? I I, I can get quite into these punchlines, you know. But um, now reading it here today, I think it was a good decision to take it out. It can be a bit nostalgic, you know. Are you ever coming back? <laughs> Oh, yeah, just in case the reader didn't get it, spell it out for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think, and I remember, or, you know, is sufficient. Yes, yeah. 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 So we're going to go to You Are Not slash Your Poetry. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say before we read that poem? Uh, no. Okay, let's read it. You Are Not Your Poetry. I'm in love with you because you write poetry. I'm in love with your poetry because I'm in love with you. I'm not in love with you because you write poems for other people. I'm not writing poems for other people because I'm in love with you. I could never love you because you use lines you've used on me on others. I can never love you because you use words you wrote for me for someone else. And there's always someone else. I will always love you because you are a poet. I will always write poetry because I love you. I don't write poems about love. I'm not in love with anyone. I don't love you. I love your poetry. I don't know the difference. Interesting state of mind. <laughs> yes, I liked your question before I read this about is this a love poem? <laughs> but we'll say is it a love poem? Maybe 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 in a way it is a love poem. Oh, I think definitely it's, yeah, a, love it's a love poem. poem. Yeah, nice. That complicated thing called love. Yeah. Oh, if you say titles like that, I'm going to break into song. <laughs> now, there's another poem here um, which I'd like you to read called The Dead Sea. Interesting. What did you enjoy being at the Dead Sea? I did. It was so beautiful there, Israel. It was just absolutely gorgeous. Um, yeah, so I'll read it. The Dead Sea. We went to the Dead Sea, but I didn't bring my bathers, so I couldn't go in. I had to watch on the shore. I didn't know then I'd never be back. I was young, I thought. Rivers and seas and skies lasted forever. I thought they'd wait for me. I thought I could build bridges back to anything, anywhere, anyone. I remember my Egyptian fiancé's mother had a checkered cloth on the table. It reminded me of my mother's back home in Melbourne. But here we were eating pigeon. It had been roasted. My mother's roasts were chicken or lamb or pork, and she always saved me the crackling. Here we were in Hergada. We were in Cairo. We went to Alexandria. My mother stayed home. My mother never went anywhere. She's still never been on a plane. 
My mother's life fills me with sadness. I thought I had time to fill it with things. Europe or an island, somewhere, anywhere. I didn't know, I didn't know what life had in store for us. Well, there's a mystery. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, that sounds like a pandemic form, but it's not. (laughs) Right, yeah. Well, it could be, couldn't it? Yeah, Mm. yeah. Mm. But um, that I I really like that line um, about the bridges. I thought I could build bridges back to anything, anywhere, anyone. Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, it's really an amazing thing when you get a little bit older, when that doesn't become possible anymore. You know, like when you're twenty, you can do that. But mm. some decades mm. on, it isn't always the case that you can. No, no. And sometimes that's because people have gone, you know, died, whatever. But sometimes, yeah, I think um, that idea about being able to build bridges belongs far more to youth and naivety. Yes, it's um, it, it's a great luxury being able to build bridges back, you know, to anything, anywhere, anyone. Mm. And um, mm. it isn't always possible. No. No. Yes, a great poem. Thank you. Talking to Gaylene Carbus about I Have Decided to Remain Vertical, which is her new book. By the way, how did you pick the title? Oh, well, it's a line from one of my poems, a really important poem in the collection, and I owe that title to... um, it was suggested by Kathleen Mary Fallon and Kathleen Mary Fallon and Marion May Campbell both came up with a list of wonderful titles. I was I was struggling with the title right up to the eleventh hour. I just just didn't feel quite right, you know, what I what I'd had originally. So, um and even this, at first I thought, oh, it's too long. I want a title with one word or two words at the most, you know. But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought it really, for me, now encapsulates the spirit of the book. And um, even though I write about darker territories um, as well as humorous territories, um I think it's got that sort of quirkiness that I think often pops up in my work. Yeah, and, um, you know, it it kind of suggests this determination to carry on in spite of obstacles. Yes, in spite of the precarious work and the precarious housing and everything. (laughs) And all the rest of it. All the rest of it. Yes. Now, just tell me, you studied poetry under Anya Volvich, I think. Uh, actually, not poetry then. Uh, I did that under Lisa Jacobson at uh, RMIT, which was wonderful. But I did study with Anya, under Anya, short story and myth and symbol, as it was called then. Oh, wow. Which was absolutely, you know, what Anya is passionate about. Yeah, yeah, Freud and Jung and, yeah. And um, unfortunately she died in um, the middle of 2021. Mm. 
Um, but there's been quite a few memorials. Um, there was a publication that came out about which uh, had a lot of work from fans or friends or students. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's a mm-hmm. there's a an annual seminar day at Deakin University on the 10th of February. And you're going to be there. Yes, as are you. <laughs> yes, I'm going to be reading two pieces at the symposium and in fact the first poem in my book is dedicated to Anya and the first line is I dreamt I married Freud which comes from it's partly mine and partly Anya's because she told me about a dream in which she'd married Freud but she didn't use that line exactly she yeah. phrased it differently. But, um, yeah, when I was starting out as a writer, I was very – well, I came to knowing the literary and the poetry scene in Melbourne quite late and uh, I was introduced to it through my then partner, Lyndon Walker, and he knew Anya very well um, before I went into that writing course And so I got to hear uh, in those very early days, having not been to any poetry readings whatsoever, the first two people that I heard were Anya Volvitz and Pio. And it's like, where do you go from there? Yes. (laughs) You know, I think they're two of the most sublime performers you could ever listen to and see, you know. Yeah, and yeah. and profoundly experimental in in different yes. ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. which yeah. I thought was, um, I mean, that's a great addition to Melbourne culture, you know, and to get away from that dead hand of social realism that sometimes strangles people, mm. you mm. know, that that wild out there quality. Yeah, they both have, though mm. you know. Pio does place his work in the real world in a very concrete way, but um, he then takes it in somewhere else. Mm. Mm. I'll never forget hearing him read those um, cafe poems about, you know, Greek men sitting outside cafes and, ah, oh, fabulous. Yeah, great contributor. Mm. Now, another great poet was Sylvia Plath. Yes. And you've got a poem here called After Sylvia. Okay. Would you like to read that? Thank you. After Sylvia. I don't expect you to write like Sylvia Plath, he said this morning. This is how a day can break, with needs tilting at your windmills. The oil in your hair reeks of coconut. Ink spills across paths you haven't taken. Sylvia was sad, he said. She never had the chance to confront, to resolve her anger against her father's remoteness. Sadness became madness. She was more damaged than you are, but be like Sylvia, go back to your poem, face it, Call your father on his bullshit, your own rage. Don't explain, don't editorialise, just say it. Read Sylvia, her poems, for their surgical precision. He adds, you need to take up that scalpel. 
I put down the phone thinking of birthday letters which he gave me for my birthday and return to my desk. I hold my pen like a knife. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's scary. Yes, <laughs> indeed. And a great, great example, Sylvia. Not that we should end up committing suicide or anything, <laughs> trigger warning, but in her passion and her poetry. Mm, yeah. What I'm really excited by in the last number of years is the flourishing of Aboriginal writing and literature, poetry. It's it's really flourishing and it's beautiful and powerful and really important. Yeah, well, I interviewed Evelyn Araluen about Drop Bear and oh, um, I really yeah. love that book. Mm, yeah. Fabulous book. Mm, yeah. An amazing first book too. Mm. Well, we've run out of time, so we'll have to stop there. But it's been great fun having you in. Oh, thank you so much yeah. for inviting me. Yeah, it's so it's lovely to see you. It's great to see you too. So my name is Di Cousins and I've been talking to Gaylene Carbus about her new book, I Have Decided to Remain Vertical. And this has been the 3CR Spoken Word Programme.